Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I just want to let you know of a couple of things before we uh, begin today's message. One is that Adam and the team have arrived safely in South Asia. They're doing well, everyone. Uh, was able to get there, and they've begun ministry. So if you'll continue to pray for all of them, we'd appreciate it. Also, uh, we mentioned in the pre in the kind of pre-roll in the announcements that Deeper Roots, our term two, starts. Just want to let you know that we hope you'll join us on Wednesday night. We have a great selection of classes. If, if you're a lady and you want to take um, Ruth Hancock's Finding I Am, if you'll come and let me know today, we're going to get your books ordered quickly because you're going to need those the first day of class. So if you're interested in that, um, j- just come and let me, or if you, if you see Ruth, also let her know. Well, as you came in, you, were, you should have received two pieces of paper. The, the one is about our care ministries here at Rosemont. This is a new ministry for us that the Lord has continued to grow. And, and what we want you to know is, is ways that, that people are um, being involved in orphan care here at this church. And we want you to join us. And we want you to join one of these teams. So in this uh, little brochure, which you can see is a description of the ministry and, and those who are overseeing that ministry. And we're hoping that you'll just begin to pray about how you can be involved. In fact, uh, we've given you on the smaller sheet a response card. And so we hope that at some point uh, today during the service and at the end, you'll have an opportunity to turn those in that, that the Lord will clearly speak to you. And, and lead you to one of these ministries and, and that you can join one of their teams in, in any way. And maybe you're not ready to take a child in, but we would just love for you to be a resource, a support for these families. Maybe you're a prayer advocate for them. There's a lot of ways that you can get involved. So if you'll just really um, ask the Lord to open your hearts today, because we, uh, we're blessed. We uh, have a speaker with us who is a great advocate and equipper of churches and families in, in orphan care, in adoption, um, in these journeys that are so clear in Scripture, in such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And this is a man God has called out to be um, someone who challenges churches. And so we're praying that as, as he comes today, that, that we'll be challenged, that we'll step up and, and really begin uh, pursuing what it means to be involved in orphan care here at Rosemont. And so I have to admit this morning we, we were getting some new things together, and I, I forgot to pray with Jason. I, and I apologize, we kind of came in in a whirlwind. Jason flew from L.A. to Atlanta last night, drove down here, got here about 12, and now he's here speaking with us. He did a conference out there, and so... As Jason, this is Jason Johnson, I'm going to let him tell about his family and his family's journey, but if Jason, if you'll come up, if I could pray for you, I would consider that a great, a great honor. If you'll join me in praying for him as, as he's kind of transitioning out of travel and, and just pray that the Lord would speak boldly through him. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great work in and through us, that you have called us out, we all orphans that you've adopted us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and made us your children. Lord, I just pray for Jason now that you would 
settle his mind. Give him a heart that is sensitive to the leading of your spirit and you would speak through him. Allow him to speak boldly, to proclaim the truth, to fulfill the calling that you have placed on his life as a minister of the gospel. Lord, bless him, bless his family. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us now through your word and through this man in Christ's name. Amen. this morning. And uh, as Jeremy said, I got to fly in from Los Angeles last night. Uh, I started out in Houston near my house to Los Angeles, two-hour time difference backwards to over here, three-hour time difference forwards to something happened with our clocks last night. Uh, So the only way I know what time it is, my body doesn't know what time it is, but the wall is very clear on what time it is. And so uh, my body's a little confused Uh, But it's really good to be here with you this morning, and this is actually the culmination of months of uh, some back-and-forth conversation uh, between um, Jeremy and some of your leadership and myself, and um, it's it's finally here. November has snuck up on us pretty quickly, and uh, so it's a pleasure to be here. The best way for me to introduce myself to you is to actually show you a picture of the world that I come from. And so you'll see them up here. This is the estrogen-filled, drama-filled world that, that I live in. And that's my wife there in the middle who manages the chaos uh, beautifully. Um, and I have a very easy job uh, here with you. It's easy and fun to be with you. Uh, and she obviously has the much more difficult job, especially uh, about right now. Um, as you all know, uh, the uniquely difficult and sometimes evil process that it takes to get kids ready for church and get them there on time and uh, everyone still love each other and, and we're okay. Like, we're okay to be at church and celebrate God can be difficult on Sundays. And so that's what she's wrangling back home right now. That's our oldest there in the middle with the Aggie shirt on. We live in College Station, Texas. And I know we're in like uh, Auburn or not Auburn country here. I don't know how it all works. Uh, but we live right next to uh, the campus of Texas. Texas A&M, uh, so close that when I walk my dog in the mornings, we can hear uh, the Aggie band um, uh, practicing in the morning, so it's a pretty cool uh, environment that we get to live in. So that's Macy. Next to her is Darby, and the turquoise is Presley. Under my arm is Marley. It's in large part Marley's uh, fault that I'm here with you this morning, and we'll share more of that story as we close later on. And then the newest addition to our family there on the left is, is Guiana and her little baby boy, Jordan. Guiana came to live with us when she was 17. She had been in foster care since the age of six, uh, and she had just given birth to uh, Jordan. The first two weeks of his life were spent sleeping on uh, the floor of a caseworker's office in Dallas, and my wife became aware of the situation, and uh, we had the pleasure of bringing them into our home. And uh, she is now 19. She's not without her struggles, and he is now two, and uh, we get the pleasure of being uh, 38-year-old grandparents to Jordan. Uh, So I'm JJ, and my wife is Emmy. That's what he calls us. And as many of you know, the best part about being grandparents is we get to give them back when it's time to give them back, right? Uh, So we get to love him, play with him, and then say, uh, he needs mommy. He's hungry, or he smells, or he's tired. And uh, so it's a lot of fun. And our story with Guiana is continuing to unfold, uh, and it will be forever. And our commitment to her is, no matter what, you're stuck with us forever. Um, there's nothing you can do to push us away. And we make her repeat that back to us. Uh, I'm stuck with you forever. That's right. Because uh, her life has been one of people who were supposed to be there for her uh, that ended up being the people who hurt her the most. And her understanding of love is the people who were supposed to love her uh, ended up being the people who betrayed her the most. 
And so um, this is the world that she grew up in. And so one thing that we constantly reiterate to her is, you're stuck with us forever. There's nothing that you could ever do to push us away. And she tries, but uh, we're not going to let that happen. So that's the world that I come from. My wife and I became foster parents in 2012 in Houston, and um, our story has never been the same since then. And we'll share a little bit more about that at the end. Uh, But what I want us to talk about this morning is not so much what we do with foster care and adoption and orphan care, but really why we do it. I really want us to focus on the why behind our what. And so before we talk about what it is that God has invited us to be a part of, and specifically what that looks like here at your own home church, before we talk about what it is that God's inviting us to be a part of, uh, I want us to talk about why. And ultimately, our why is rooted in what Christ has done for us in the gospel. That becomes the framework and the foundation behind anything and everything that we would ever do for anyone else. Why would we do for someone else, ultimately because of what Jesus has done for us. And so that's really where I want us to spend the bulk of our time. And then we'll look at some implications of that uh, as we close out this morning. And so my favorite verse in all of Scripture, my favorite uh, chunk of verses in all of Scripture is Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. If you were to say, Jason, uh, we're going to strip everything else uh, out of your Bible, and we're only going to leave you with a few verses, which ones would you choose, I would say this. This passage of scripture tells us so much about who God is and what God does, but it also tells us uh, about what God is inviting us to be a part of as well. This is also one of my favorite passages because it really encapsulates the essence of Christmas. It's, a, it's my favorite Christmas verse that I never hear preached at Christmas. And so it's a little late. It's next month. Can you believe it's strange to even say Christmas is next month, Uh, but you've got like 12 months uh, to hound your pastors and to to, um, lobby them as hard as you can to preach Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 at Christmas next year. And here's here's why. Let's read it, uh, and then we're going to pick it apart for a, a little bit. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's that imagery as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so here's what this chunk of scripture does. It sets up for us who God is and what God does. And then it lays out for us in really beautiful fashion the implications of that in our own life. What has Jesus done for us? And specifically, what does that look like in our life? And then ultimately, how does that act as the why behind we would do for others. And so Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, let's start there. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's Christmas. It's my favorite Christmas verse. There's no magi, there's no shepherds, there's no angels, there's, there's none of that, which I love that stuff, but uh, there's none of that in this verse. But it still defines Christmas. And here's why. That phrase, at the full, when the fullness of time had come, literally means at just the right time. So we can read that at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's Christmas. Jesus was born of a woman. We know her name to be Mary. At just the right time, Jesus was born. So you can imagine it in this way. You can imagine that throughout all the course of human history, the sovereignty of God and the providence of God decided right now is the perfect time, it's the right time for me to enter into the human story in physical form. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. 
He was born of a woman, born under the law. That phrase, under the law, is a reference to this idea of being condemned to death. And so we don't talk about that so much at Christmas. We save that. That's a few months later at Easter. But it's still true at Christmas that Jesus was born ultimately to die. And he makes that very clear in his ministry. I came to be a ransom. I came to lay my life down. And so what we celebrate at Christmas is this idea that at just the right time, God stepped into our story wrapped himself up in it, literally, in order to die for us. That was his redemptive mission. So if you were sitting in a seminary class now, uh, the professor might say, this is the doctrine of incarnation. This is what we understand to be incarnation. This idea that God would wrap himself in flesh, in humanity, and ultimately that God would wrap himself up in our brokenness. He would be broken by our brokenness on the cross so that we don't have to be broken anymore. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of Christmas. It's true all the time. That Jesus, at just the right time, sees us where we are. He steps into our story. He wraps himself up in our brokenness. He's broken by our brokenness so that we don't have to be broken anymore. So the best way for me to distill down in my simple mind this idea of incarnation is uh, we have these restaurants in Texas. They're Tex-Mex restaurants, which basically are like fake Mexican restaurants, right? Right? Uh, uh, it's like not real Mexican, but good enough for us in Texas. So uh, true people who are truly from Mexico say that is, how dare you even reference that as Mexican food, right? So I don't know what your version of that here is, but in Texas, we've got Tex-Mex, and you can order this thing called chili con carne, which literally means chili with meat. It's the same root of this idea of incarnation, con carne. It's God with meat on, Okay. So my seminary professors, I'm sure, roll over in their grave every time I use Tex-Mex to illustrate this beautiful doctrine of incarnation. But that's how it makes sense. It's God with meat on. It's God with our brokenness wrapped around him. So the next time you're at some Mexican restaurant, you can order chili con carne and just impress your friends. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of this deep, beautiful doctrine of incarnation. They'll look at you like, what in the world? This is the essence of Christmas. And what we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, is this this idea of who God is and what God does. It basically says this to us. God is the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people, and he moves towards them and not away from them. Isn't that great? That at Christmas, we see that God is moving towards his people. And we understand that. um, We understand that kind of on the surface of Christmas, that this beautiful idea, we celebrate that Jesus was born, but really it's Behind the scenes, it is this significant, redemptive shift in the mission of God that he would say, now is the time for me to move even closer to my people. And it's really just this continuation of the whole story of Scripture. From the very beginning to the very end of Scripture, we see God incessantly and aggressively and sacrificially moving closer and closer towards his people. So you track all the way back Uh, to the Old Testament. And the Israelites are wandering in the desert and God is hovering over them like a cloud and a pillar of fire. And then he makes a redemptive shift and he says, okay, I want you to build a tabernacle and I'm going to dwell within a room in that tabernacle. It will have restricted access to certain people at certain times, but God moves from out there to now in, in here, in there. And then the prophets start to prophesy about this Emmanuel who is coming, which we know to be God with us. So God has gone from out there to kind of in here, restricted access to now he's going to be with us. 
And so this hope of the Old Testament as it closes out is that, that God is coming in some human form to be with us. He's moving closer to us. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus get his disciples around and say, hey guys, uh, I'm leaving soon. And they say, no, 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 we need you with us. And he says, no, it's actually going to be better for you because I'm sending my spirit and he's going to live inside of you. It's going to be better for you because when I leave, actually the, what's going to replace this is another redemptive shift. I'm going to move even closer to you by living inside of you. So God is progressively and, and sacrificially moving closer and closer to his people, and Christmas is just a continuation of that. So let's look at the implications, that God is the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people, and he moves towards them and not away from them. And then in verse 5, 6, and 7, Paul begins to really unpack what specifically does that mean for us? What does that actually look like in our life? So verse 5 says, at just the right time, Jesus was born uh, into our brokenness to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul uses that phrase again, under the law. Remember what it meant in verse 4 condemned to die, under condemnation. And now Paul plays these two things together and says, Jesus was born condemned to die to redeem those who were condemned to die. So not only is God the kind of God that sees hard places and broken people and moves towards them, he also meets us exactly where we are. And so this is past tense language that we were once condemned, but now we have been adopted. And so the first implication of what happens when Jesus steps into our story is he says, I see you where you are, and I'm coming after you, and I'm stepping into your story, and everything's going to change. And the first thing that changes is our past, that our past becomes redeemed, that he redeems us out of the broken context that we once lived in. Scripture is very clear that outside of Jesus, our past is defined and marked by odds and enmity with God. Scripture is also very clear that that's exactly where Jesus met us, and he took that condemnation on himself. He carried that brokenness to the cross so that we don't have to be broken anymore. And so passages like Romans chapter 8 now say things like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation. You have been set free from the, the, the heavy weight of the law, and you have been given new life. So here's what that means for us in Christ. Those of us who are, are in Christ can look back on our past and our past is no longer a source of condemnation for us. That's what Romans 8 says. Look back on your past. There's no more condemnation. It is no longer a source of condemnation. It's actually now a platform of great celebration. Because we can look back on our past and say, wow, look at what Jesus has done. Praise God. And so not long after Guiana moved in with us, just as an illustration of our most recent kind of story in our own family, uh, Guiana came to live with us with a chip on her shoulder, and rightfully so. She's been in the system since she was six, and the people who were supposed to take care of her never did. They actually made things worse for her, and she didn't want to be there. It, nothing about this situation is ideal, but she came into our room one night after some pretty difficult weeks, and she said, can we talk? And that's always kind of a heavy question, right, when somebody asks you that. Like, you want to say, it depends on what you want to talk about, right? Uh, is it good? Sure, I got plenty of time. Uh, you know, but she says, can we talk? And we say, sure, no problem. And she comes in and she says, I think I know what I want to do when I grow up. We say, okay. What's that? And she says, I think I want to be a social worker. We said, that's fantastic. Why do you want to be a social worker? She says, because I want to be a caseworker for kids 
um, because they deserve good ones. And all I've ever had my entire life is bad ones. And these kids deserve good ones. And we said, Guiana, how brilliant is that? How amazing would it be? How unfortunate would it be for a child to be removed uh, from a traumatic situation? But how amazing would it be for you to be the person that walks in the room and gets to look that kid in the face and say, hey, it's going to be okay. I know exactly how it feels. I've been here before. And so Guiana has spent most of her life surviving, surviving day to day with no hopes or dreams for what could, be, what could come tomorrow. Because when all you're doing is surviving, you have no time to dream. But for the first time, she comes in and she begins to dream about what her future could look like. But she does it based on the platform of her broken past. She's, for the first time, you can start to see her begin to process, what would it look like for me to take the ugliness of my past and use it for redemptive good in the future? And in the gospel, what we get to celebrate is that our, our past doesn't drag us down. It's not a source of condemnation for us. It's actually a platform of celebration for us. That somehow, some way, the scandalous nature of grace can, can redeem our past and use it for redemptive purposes moving forward. And so that's why we do what we do. That's why God invites us to step into the lives of, of struggling people and vulnerable people. It's so on some level and in some capacity, we can step in to their broken context and say, it doesn't have to be like this anymore. God can redeem this for good. You don't have to live in this place forever. But it doesn't end there. Verse 5 continues. Verse 4 says that our past has been redeemed. Verse 5 begins to talk about our new present reality in Christ. It says that, that, therefore, our, in, that we have been redeemed uh, from our broken context, and we have been introduced into this new family through adoption. And then verse five, or verse six, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So our past has been redeemed, and now Paul starts talking about our new present reality. And he uses this, this term, Abba. And the word Abba is a very tender and affectionate form of the word Father. So our modern translation of that word might be the word Daddy. Just a very tender and affectionate a connotation of the word father. So it's the difference between my four girls uh, calling me father, which they don't, okay? Uh, they don't come and say, father, can we have some ice cream? Like really proper British kids. They don't, they don't talk to me like that. I'd say, don't talk to me like that. That's weird. Why are you talking to me like that? Instead, it's daddy. Daddy, can we have this? Daddy, this. Daddy, that. Now, I'm the same guy. There's not two different uh, guys living in our house. Uh, trust me, I've looked. There's no more guys. It's just me, all right? <laughs> I'm the same guy, father and daddy. But this, this idea of daddy carries with it this connotation of, of intimacy and affection and approachability and vulnerability and safety and security. Now, granted, in a few years when all the boys start swarming around our house, everyone in the room is going to know who father is, right? But what's more important for me right now for my girls to know is, is not so much that I'm father, but that I'm daddy, because it connotates this, this idea of closeness and nearness. And so Paul is using this language uh, pretty significantly. And he's juxtaposing it with our past. In our past, our relationship with God was defined by odds and enmity. But now in our new present reality, our relationship with God is defined by intimacy and affection and security and, and closeness and nearness. So here's what that means for you and I. Right now in Christ, in our new present reality, we don't have to be afraid of what God thinks of us. We don't have to be afraid of how God, God's going to respond to us. We don't have to wonder if he's angry with us or disappointed in us or embarrassed by us. 
because we already know exactly what God thinks of us and how he feels about us, like a good daddy would. I'm not embarrassed by my girls. I'm not ashamed of my girls. Every once in a while, I'm disappointed, right? But it's always met with grace and love and, and, and nearness and closeness. And we have this confidence now, Scripture says. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence now, knowing exactly how God is going to respond to us in any and all circumstances. All the anger of God, all the disappointment of God towards us has been poured out on the back of Jesus. And so that introduces us into this new, secure, present reality. And so the constant drumbeat uh, in, in Guiana's life from us is you are stuck with us forever. You are stuck with us forever. And what we're doing in that, as best as we can, is communicating this idea of security. You don't have to fight and claw your way through. You can live today with a present security that there are people in your life who are never going to leave you. And there are people in your life that you know exactly how they feel about you at all times. Then no matter what, you cannot push us away. We will constantly be moving closer and closer towards you. You are, there is nothing that you can ever do to push us away. And we have this present security now in Christ that our position with God has been secured. We can live today with a present security, but it doesn't end there. So verse 7 continues. Our past has been redeemed. Our present has been shifted. But then verse 7 talks about our new future reality. It says, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we all know what an heir is. An heir is someone who lives today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow. We live today with a promise that's guaranteed. And any time in Scripture that we read about what's to come in our future, there's a couple consistent promises that we see. They pop up all over the context of what's to come in our future. The first promise that's to come in our future that we see in Scripture is wrapped up in this word called glory, this idea of glory. That when we read about what's to come in our future, uh, we see, number one, that glory is coming. While our outward bodies waste away, our inward souls long for and groan for the glory that will be revealed. It says that while our present struggles here have a certain weight to them, they pale in comparison to the weight of glory that will be revealed in the end. And so one of the first promises that we have about our future in Scripture is that in the end, glory is coming. But one of the second promises that we have uh, in Scripture is not so much fun. This is the one that we wish actually wasn't true, but it's very true in Scripture. Jesus makes no bones about it. That while glory is coming, number one, number two, it's going to be a little bumpy along the way. And it's going to be increasingly bumpy along the way. You know, Jesus never says, come follow me, it's going to be smooth sailing. He actually, quite the opposite, come follow me, and it's, it's going to become increasingly difficult as the time goes on. But the hope that we hold out is that in the end, it's worth it, that glory is coming. And so you and I now live today in a world that, that for the most part, is driven by a message of fear. And I don't say that to drive more fear. I just say that for us to kind of look around and listen and say, yeah, it's everywhere. Our 24-hour news stations, our political commentators, our political candidates, the, any reference to the economy or just anything. We're constantly being told of all these different things that we need to be afraid of. And then we're being told to tune, tune in later to our 24-hour news station of choice to learn more about what we need to be afraid of, right? 
We're just constantly being told of all the things that we need to be afraid of. I landed in Los Angeles um, on, I don't know, some night. I don't even, it's Sunday now. I think it was Thursday. Uh, And just to have some background noise in the hotel as I was getting ready for bed, turned on the news, and it was about 30 minutes of really, really awful stories. This tragedy on this side of the city and this killing on this side of the city and uh, these politicians doing this and the economy of L.A. and da-da-da-da-da. And I thought, wow, what an awful way to end your day. Just constantly being told of all these different things that you need to be afraid of. But it's everywhere that we turn. We're constantly being told of all these things that we need to be afraid of. But here's what's true for you and I in Christ today. That we live today with the assurance of what's to come tomorrow that we hold out hope that in the end, glory's coming and Jesus wins over all of this. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have to be wise today and good stewards today and, and discerning today, but it does mean that we don't have to be afraid today because in the end, Jesus wins. And so why do we do what we do for vulnerable children and family and for kids in crisis and for orphans around the world? Because on some level, we wanna step into their story and say, hey, you don't have to be afraid of tomorrow anymore. You can live today with the assurance of what's to come. You don't have to be afraid of what you're going to eat tomorrow or if you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, who's going to be there for you or who's not going to be there for you. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You're stuck with us forever. And so as we unpack this this beautiful um, picture of the gospel in our own lives, the, the implications start to become very clear for us. That if God is the kind of God that says, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you, I'm stepping into your story, taking your story upon myself, being broken by your brokenness so you don't have to be broken anymore, then as we become a people who increasingly celebrate that truth in us, we also become a people who increasingly demonstrate that truth through us. That we refuse to be a people who accept that for ourselves and yet, yet not disseminate that out for others, but that we become this conduit that deeply celebrates what Jesus has done for us and then widely demonstrates what what Jesus has done for others through us. And so that leads us to James 1.27, which in the orphan care world and in the foster care world is one of our favorite verses. But it's not necessarily saying what we think it's saying all the time. And so I want us to pick it apart a little bit. You know, there's this oil change place near my house in College Station, and it's brilliant. Uh, I don't have to get out of my car. I don't have to do anything. You just pull in, and I'm not, like, my idea of camping is the Hyatt downtown, okay? Like, that's me, all right? And I have no, no shame in that at all, right? Uh, and so the idea of, I know I can learn to change my own oil, but why? right? I'm just going to pay somebody else to do it, a pro. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do it the, the least manly, manly way that I possibly can. So I'm going to go through the drive through oil change place. I don't even have to get out of my car. Uh, it's Texas, so it's hot. They roll up a portable air conditioner next to your door and blow cold air on you while manly men are under my car doing real manly work, and I'm sitting there in the air conditioner, right? <coughs> Doesn't bother me at all. I'm perfectly secure with that. But there's a couple funny things that happen uh, every time I get my oil changed. The first one is you pull in and, and they say, hey, what kind of oil do you want? And I'm like, I don't know, the kind that goes in cars. I don't know, there's, a lot, there's different kinds of oil. So I play it cool, you know, we'll, I'll, we'll just do what we did last time. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm just trying to play it cool. Uh, and so they say, okay, and then they do their deal. And then they, at the end, they come up and they hold out the dipstick in front of you, right? You guys experience that? Is that what we call it, the dipstick? 
You think we have a better term for that, but we don't, I guess. They hold the dipstick out, and they want you to verify that the oil level is correct. Uh, and so, again, I play it cool and, um, and act like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it looks good. I'm nodding an approval to something that I literally have no idea what I just signed off on, right? They could have poured syrup in my tank, and yep, looks great. Good job, guys, right? Get me out of here. So I think sometimes that there's scriptures, and there's just things in life that sometimes we, we become so familiar with them that we look at them and we kind of nod in approval towards them. Yeah, it looks good. I get it. But we really don't fully understand what it is that we're signing off on. And so James 1.27 is, is, is an example of that, okay? So the first thing about James 1.27 is that this is not a command verse. James 1.27 isn't commanding us to do anything, okay? It's often referenced as our command to care for orphans, when in fact it's not. This is a descriptive verse. This verse is describing something, not commanding something. It's describing who God is, what God does, and then as a result, who we are and what we do. And it's describing what it looks like for the gospel to be put on display with purity and vividness and undefiledness. It's describing, really, uh, the entire redemptive story of Scripture, that God's the kind of God that's constantly moving closer to his people, that this is the essence of the gospel, and that when we do that as well, it puts the gospel on display with purity and vividness. And so this is what you do in seminary. You take perfectly fine verses, and you um, dissect them, and it can actually be really helpful. And so let's see. Religion in, in this verse is not our word religion. It's not steeples and cathedrals the way we think of religion. This idea of religion in the original language is an outward display of something that's inwardly true. That's what we're talking about. An outward display of the gospel that's inwardly true in us. So one of the purest and most undefiled outward displays of the gospel before God is to visit or to move, step towards, get involved with. To, to lean into hard places and broken people. You know, that's, that flies in the face of, of the expectation that, that kind of hovers over most of us in life. The expectation is you're going to be a good kid, get good grades, go to a good college, get a good degree, get a good job, a good salary, marry a good girl or guy, live in a good house, have good kids, um, uh, uh, get a good retirement, and, and you're good. That's it. And throughout all that process, do anything and everything that you have to do to avoid things that might compromise that. Avoid hard and broken things. And then scripture steps in and says, actually, what would it look like if we became the kind of people that saw hard and broken things and we actually moved towards them? We didn't go out of our way to avoid them. Well, this is what it would look like. That one of the purest, most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel is to see hard places and broken people and to move towards them, not away from them. That's what James 1.27 is saying. So we go back to it, and it says one of the purest, most undefiled demonstrations of the gospel is to visit, to step towards, to get involved with orphans and widows. And so that phrase, orphans and widows, again, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not orphans and widows only. That's representative of the most vulnerable people in James's culture, that the fatherless and the husbandless in James's culture were considered the most worthless. And so James is using them as representatives, and he's saying, look, we become the kind of people that move towards those that our society has deemed the most worthless or the most marginalized or the most vulnerable. We move towards them and not away from them. And when we do that, it puts the gospel on display with great purity and with great vividness. Why? Because people around us look and say, why would you do that? 
It flies in the face of the expectation that hovers over all of us to avoid hard and broken things. And you're actually moving towards them. Why would you do that? And we get to say, well, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why we get to do what we do. And so the implications for us are clear, that we become these kind of people. But the applications for us are incredibly broad and endless. So let me tell you a couple stories and we'll be, we'll be done. I was in Kansas City not long ago and I met a guy at a church, a large church function that was hosting a dinner for foster families. And uh, it was a barbecue restaurant that was catering the function. And he comes up to me after and says, hey, I own, I own the barbecue restaurant that catered this dinner. Uh, I'm in my early 70s. We're not really in a position to bring kids into our home right now. Um, although that doesn't, it's not because of his age. My parents are 68 and 63 and they just completed their home study. Uh, to become licensed foster parents last week. So his wasn't because of his age. It's never too late. His was other life circumstances, but he says, we can't do that. I know what I can't do, but I know what I can do. And what I can do is barbecue. And what I can do, I can do really well. And so I use my barbecue restaurant and my business as a blessing to foster and adoptive families. And so they donate food, and every time a family brings a child into their home, they're the first on the doorstep delivering a free meal. So here's a guy that says, look, I know what I can't do, but I know what I can do. And what I can do, I'm going to do really well. The guy that owns the oil change place that I drive through and have cold air blasted on me while they're doing the real manly work, one Saturday a month on their marquee, he puts a sign out that says free oil changes for foster families, single moms, and widows. I know what I can't do, but I know what I can do. And God's given me this, and I can use it for these purposes. And so here's what we see in life, and here's what we see in Scripture, is that we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all capable of doing something. The implications of the gospel are clear, but the applications of the gospel are broad. They're as unique and diverse and creative as each individual person in this room. And so the question is, what's your something? What's your something? For some of you, it might be we need to open our home and bring kids into our home. For some of you, it might be, I need to use my barbecue restaurant to bless this community. And everything in between. Everyone can do something. But we're not all called to do the same thing. That's the essence of Romans chapter 12 when it talks about the body of Christ. It says that we're all different members. We, we're, all, we're all members of the body, but we all have different functions within the body. We are individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. So we've all been given different gifts and different resources and different capacities. And, and elsewhere in Scripture, it says that we're like ears and eyes and hands and feet. We all don't do the same thing. We all do different things, but for the same purpose. So we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all created to do something. That we become a people who deeply celebrate the gospel, and then a people who widely demonstrate that gospel in unique and creative and diverse ways. So let me close with a story. When I was nine years old, I learned that the man I had grown up calling dad was, in fact, not my biological father. This came as a surprise to me. It was an impromptu family meeting between my mom, my older sister, and uh, my dad and I. And they began to detail for me what the first two and a half years of my life looked like, that um, uh, at the hands of a biological father, you named the vice, and he excelled at it. He was great at all of them. And it left my mom alone with a very broken story and two uh, kids to go along with it. She strolls into a church in North Dallas one day. She sees a young worship leader up on stage. They develop a friendship, develop a relationship, eventually fall in love. And at the age of 23 years old, this man would get down on his knee and ask to take the hand of my 31-year-old mom in marriage. 23-year-old kid. 
and would get down on his knee and, and say, I know your story. I love you because of your story. Let's begin to write an entirely new story together. And then he would turn and ask to take the hand of my sister to become his daughter. And he would turn and ask to take my hand to become his son. I know your story. I love you because of your story. Let's begin to write an entirely new story together. He would eventually marry my mom and adopt me and my older sister. And when he did that, he changed my first, middle, and last name. So I have two birth certificates and two different sets of names. The old is gone and the new has come. And there hasn't been a day that's gone by, almost 30 years after learning of this story, that I haven't paused and considered, gosh, where would I be right now and what would I be doing right now had my dad not at just the right time said, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you and we're going to begin to write an entirely new story together. I can guarantee I wouldn't be here with you today. That I can't count on this side of heaven how exponentially different my life is and the future trajectory of my life is because this man stepped in. He redeemed our past brokenness. He changed literally my present reality and my full identity. And he put me on a future trajectory that otherwise I would have never been on. So in 2012, my wife and I became foster parents in Houston. We had the opportunity to bring a little girl into our home. April 25th, 2012, and she's never left our home. She's now since become our daughter, and she's super cute, and now you're not listening to me because you're totally distracted by the picture. (laughs) On April 25th, 2012, everything that we thought we knew and everything that we thought we wanted came to a crashing uh, halt because um, it's impossible to have a tragically broken story placed in your arms, literally, a three-day-old baby girl brought to our door and placed in our arms and not have all of your comfort and all of your convenience completely dismantled by this broken story. She ruined our lives that night in the best of ways. And she's never left our home since. She's since become our daughter, and we've adopted her and changed her first, middle, and last name. So she and I share that story. We have a lot of birth certificates and a whole lot of names between the two of us. And there hasn't been a day that's gone by since she's been in our home where we haven't paused and considered, gosh, where would she be and what would she be doing and what would she be eating and who would she be playing with? All these scenarios had we not been given the privilege to become a part of her story. But even more haunting than that, more haunting than where, where would she be was really the, is really the question of, gosh, where would we be right now had she not stepped into our story and completely flipped our world upside down? Because I'm convinced we didn't really rescue her as much as she rescued us from our apathy, our complacency, our pursuit of comfort and convenience, our limited worldview, our limited understanding of really how the scripture works. She, she rescued us from the potential of never really fully engaging in those things. And where would we be right now had she not stepped into our story? And so that's the question I leave with you here this morning. Is really the question of, gosh, where would I be right now In the grand scheme of things, where would I be right now had Jesus not, at just the right time, said, I see you where you are and I'm coming after you. I'm stepping into your story and everything is going to change as a result of that. Some of you might say, gosh, if he hadn't done that for me, I'd been dead a long time ago. Or I certainly wouldn't be here this morning. Or the sin that used to plague my life, I'd be so steeped in it now, you wouldn't even recognize me. But Jesus stepped into my story at just the right time and changed everything. And so I'm convinced that your answer to that question, where would I be right now had Jesus not, your answer to that question becomes the framework and the foundation upon which God is now inviting you to consider how you can do for others what Jesus has so beautifully done for you. So let me pray. Father, we do ask for your wisdom. We ask for the courage needed 
to step out into those spaces that you have uh, resourced us. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.